Well, if you have whatever copy of God's Word you have with you this morning, turn to Psalm 48. I'm so glad to be here. I love Joe as well, and I love this church. My wife, Tony, and I have been following New Life um, for years, uh, not just when we were in Whitehall, but before that. This church has a story, and this church has a history that's very, very interesting and very God-glorifying, and so it's an honor for me to be here this morning, and on behalf of my wife, and on behalf of the good people at First Baptist West Jefferson, um, thanks for uh, allowing me to be here. Now, it's true, I have been all over the place. Um, For some people, that's because they can't hold a job, Um, and for uh, other people, like myself, it's because the job can't hold me, but um, um, actually, that sounded really arrogant, didn't it? I didn't mean it that way at all, Um, but yes, I was in Jackson, Mississippi, um, very um, different place, but we loved Jackson. And it's a, it's a great place to be. It's a great place to uh, hang out and watch the culture um, there. It, it's just such an interesting place. I got to tell you the thing I enjoyed about Jackson, Mississippi the most. I am a huge Buckeye fan. And it was so sweet to be in the Deep South in SEC country when Ohio State beat Alabama and won the national championship. That was one of the sports highlights of my life. It rates right up there with Miracle on Ice and the 1986 Masters. It's, it's just awesome stuff. But this morning, I want us to have a God conversation. And I'm really taking a chance today because I know that um, normally we gather together, especially when we're in a conference-type setting, and we want you know the speaker to give us the, the blanks to fill in, and we want all of the blanks to start with the same letter of the alphabet and all that kind of thing. The chance I'm taking today is if we're going to talk about the glory of God and if we're going to have a worthy God conversation, my job this morning I don't think is as much to give you all there is to know about God as it is to present to you some motivation for you to just be filled with what, just a little bit of the anticipation, something to just feed your spirit that will say, I have got to go and make it my life's passion to leave this earth someday knowing as much about God as I possibly can and worshiping Him in as full a way as I possibly can. So let's begin that journey this morning, this journey of of hopefully motivation for our lives. I want to ask you to stand and do something might be a little bit different for you, but I want you to read the scriptures with me today from Psalm 48. It's verses 1 and 2 and then verses 9 through 14. I want you to read them aloud with me. Okay, here we go. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, The joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. So God, we come to you today asking you to pursue us with intensity and with fervor and God 
as you pursue us, Lord, may we pursue you. May we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And God, when we leave this place, may we love our neighbor as ourselves so that we might make a difference in this world for the cause of Christ and the gospel of Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What do you think about God? I mean, when you, when you pause to consider like David did when he looked into the night sky and became overwhelmed with the thought that God considered him, when you're thinking about God, and I hope you do that a lot, what do you think about God? The most important thoughts you ever think will be the thoughts you have about God, who he is, what he expects from you as his creation what purpose he has given you in this life. And in relation, in relation to that, when you think about God, what is your basis for who you believe him to be? Is your feeling uh, about God one who, who, who brings about thoughts that he is an angry judge or one that brings about thoughts that he's your winning lottery ticket? When you think about God, do you think about the benevolent, love, loving parent or do you think about the abusive father. I heard once someone say that no culture has ever sustained a level of success that exceeded its view of God. And I believe if we look back at all of history, we will find that statement to be true. And I hope we realize the significance of that this morning. It means the way we see God, our view of God, knowing God affects everything else in our lives. Of course, it, it affects our religious beliefs, but it also affects our laws, our system of justice, our politics, poverty, education, music. The list is endless. What we think about God affects our own personal development as we go through childhood and, and then into and through adolescence and adulthood and into our senior adult years. Our view of God certainly shapes our view of life, our view of death, and our view of life after death. And of course, what we think about God and specifically His Son, Jesus Christ, affects where we will spend our forever. Nothing could be more important than that. Therefore, nothing could be more important than what you think about God. Jesus talked about this in John 14, 1, when he said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And, and what did Jesus mean by that statement? Well, we know he's beginning the discourse of, of, ex, of claiming the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of coming into the presence of God in eternity for himself, but we also know this from John 14, 1. We know that Jesus is making a clear statement about his own deity and about his absolute equal nature with God. In verse 5 then, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus says in verse 6, of course, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, one of the areas where we get messed up in our thoughts about God today is that we just kind of find ourselves 
in a battle with the world's view of God, if the world even believes in God, and we find ourselves kind of trying to find this level of synthesis between the values of the people around us and the values of the culture and what the Bible has to say about who God is, but we have to come to the conclusion, we must come to the conclusion that that attitude is not good enough. That attitude really will not progress us on the road to knowing God, and it certainly will not take us further down the road of looking like Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I I want to hit you with a thought this morning about God and the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I think is worth considering. You know, the surveys tell us that somewhere between 45 and 65% of evangelicals believe that there is more than one way to heaven. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy of the first order because, you see, the more we accept that premise, the more we become actually a part of misleading our culture as to how they can come to know eternal life through Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness of their sin, through faith in Him. We cannot be a part of sending the wrong message. We must resolve ourselves that we must be a part of sending the right message of who Jesus is and the fact that Jesus died to save sinners of whom we are the worst. As a matter of fact, did you ever stop to think that if Jesus Christ, based on John 14, 6, if Jesus Christ is not the only way to heaven, then he cannot possibly be one of the ways to heaven. You either have to see Jesus as the only way to God or as not being one of the ways to God because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the only way. And so if he is not the only way, then he cannot be a way because Jesus is can't even tell the truth. But in John 14, 1, he claims equality with the Father. And and we know throughout the scriptures, Jesus makes that claim again. What did he say? He said, I and the Father are one. What did he say? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the problem for a lot of Christians today is that after we're saved, we really don't spend much time thinking about who God is. And we, we pay the price for that, in, in part because if we're not thinking enough about God, it probably means we're thinking way too much about ourselves. I mean, just go into Books a Million. I mean, do you, does anyone still read books? I mean, I know, you know, I've got friends who are on Kindle all the time, and, you know, I s- still bring the paper copy, you know, but my sons make fun of me for that because they always have the electronic, you know, issue, issue with them all the time. But if you ever go into a, a Books a Million and you go to the self-help section, you'll discover very quickly we are in love with ourselves. We are absorbed with the concept of me, Now, as a Christian, you know, you might not think there's a whole lot of harm in that. After all, Jesus wouldn't have died for you if you were not incredibly important to God. But, and that's true. God loves you with the purest love that's possible. But when you stop to think about it, if if you're absorbed with yourself, you cannot possibly have the right concept of God because Jesus Christ has called us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then let God take care of adding all the other stuff to us. And as a Christian, you might think about spiritual truth in general, but how much time do you spend meditating specifically on who God is? How much time do you spend considering the reality of God's attributes 
and how those attributes affect your life and your problems and the decisions you have to make. How does who God is affect your worship? Now, maybe you don't see the connection, but listen to Isaiah 26.3. The Bible says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. you. You can't trust someone you don't know. You can't throw your life off the edge of, of, of what is known and where your comfort zone is into the realm of the unknown for the sake of the gospel of Christ if you don't know whose arms you're falling into. So it's so important that we know who God is. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get really, really focused on myself. My mind can be focused on the right things at the expense of the right one. A.W. Tozer said, the spirit of the age, even in the Christian, spawns great thoughts of man and leaves only small thoughts of God. Christians today, I believe, are guilty in large part because of our lack of real consideration of who God is. Christians today are guilty of living beneath their privileges as children of God because our thoughts are so consumed with ourselves rather than God. And even as the church gathers together for worship. The reason we have gathered here today, we find ourselves being led through our lack of understanding of who God is into a mindset that, that somehow is, has devolved over the last 30 or 40 or 50 years into a mindset that, that the church is a consumable product and I am the customer who must be satisfied. Can I just tell you, there, I think there are good reasons to leave a church, but there aren't nearly as many good reasons as we think there are. God has called us, yes, to unity. What a marvelous exercise we've gone through this morning, an exercise of unity. God has called us to unity. Why has he called us to unity? He's called us to unity because he has called us to be a spiritual family. He has called us to have our hearts knit together, and that is... That knitting together, that welding together of who we are cannot be conditional upon always being in agreement. It can't be conditional upon having the hottest pastor in town. Now, I know you called me here today to speak to you because of my good looks. I understand that. I understand, you know, how it is. But I also want you to know that your unity can't be based on almost any external. It has to be based on who God has called you to be in Christ. Tozer also said, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. Tozer believed that our diminished view of God was the cause of, quote, a hundred lesser evils among the children of God. Is your view of God too small? J.B. Phillips wrote a book several years ago called Your God is Too Small. Is your concept of God too small? Is your concept of God too small to make a real difference in your life? Is your concept of God too small so that there might be a spiritual filling of your own cup that overflows so that you have something to give to somebody else who desperately needs Jesus? 
Look at the 14th verse of Psalm 48. It says, for this is our God. What God is the, what God is the psalmist referring to? Well, I can tell you he's not referring to the anonymous God of our postmodern culture. I can tell you he's not referring to the God who loves people so much that he forgets about his holiness. He is not referring to the God that all roads lead to. He's not referring to the God who is just fine sharing shelf space in the God Hall of Fame along with all of the other gods in the trophy case of the world's religions. He's not the God that so many pastors and so many politicians have invented in order to make him or her more palatable to a politically correct society. The psalmist is not describing the God who has been stripped of his holiness or his righteous anger towards sin. He's not talking about the God of the theological liberal who claims no exclusive throne, who has no exclusive rights, and has no exclusive power to redeem the souls of men. That's not who the psalmist is talking about. Modern Christianity has, has invented a God that can neither condemn men nor save them. A God that can neither wound nor heal. Our modern world has, has invented an impotent God and it's time for Christians to know who the real God is, the one true God, so that we can worship Him without shame and without reservation and we can tell everyone else this is the one true God and he's worthy of your worship and he's worthy of your praise and he's worthy of your life. But who is the God of the Bible? Who is the God of whom the psalmist speaks? He is the God of the Old and New Testaments. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who spoke the worlds into existence and created everything and who breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And it is at that point where man specifically, human beings, became living souls, that thing which differentiates us from the animals. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the giver of life, the breath of life, and the fountain of life. He is eternal life. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And whether you are spiritually lost this morning or whether you are spiritually saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the world may tell you that it's wise to fashion a God to meet your needs, your desires, your sins, your lusts. But the Bible, the God of the Bible is the one true God. And I can tell you the biggest danger, the single biggest danger to not investing our lives in understanding as much as we possibly can about who God really is. The biggest danger in that is that if Left to ourselves, we will always fashion a God who looks just like us. We can't afford that. It's a waste of a life to make my God look like me. I don't want a weak God. I don't want a God who falls to temptation. I don't want a God who's not worthy of worship. I don't want a God who I don't have to sacrifice on behalf of 
of his calling upon my life. I don't want to serve that kind of a God. And can I tell you, as the church is trying to change itself and morph itself as to something that's going to kind of be palatable for everybody, what we're doing as we do that is we're taking away the life-changing characteristics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If God will not change your life, what in the world are we doing here? Psalm 48 gives us a beautiful picture of who God is. And and keep in mind as we look at this that the psalmist is personifying the city of Zion as an illustration of who God is, the greatness of God. And I want you to see in in verse 1, he refers to his holy mountain. And listen to the description. The psalmist says her towers, her bulwarks are without number. Her walls of Defense are on every side. There are great palaces that generations in the future are going to talk about. And this is a description of the presence of God as he made himself known in Jerusalem. Listen to the adjectives that the psalmist uses in verse 1. Great and holy. In verse 2, joyous. In verse 3, refuge. Verse 9, unfailing loving kindness. That's who God is. Verse 10, Righteousness, verse 11, justice. Martin Luther understood this. Luther was set free when he discovered God's grace. Now, how did that happen in the life of a man who was absorbed with working to earn God's approval, working to earn his own salvation? Martin Luther was a miserable man. He said, if anyone could have been saved by his monkery, it would have been me. He was the monk of all monks. And one of the the things that he had just absorbed himself with was living such a great life that God would say, okay, you're in. And the more Luther came to study the scriptures, at first he came to this understanding that this is hopeless for me. I'm condemned to an eternity in hell. There is no hope for my own salvation because I'm starting to understand God and, I'm, and I know who I am, there's no hope for me. Well, how in the world did he make the jump then? How did he come then to the, to the point where he became a man who would receive the grace of God? It's so simple that you and I cannot afford to miss this. Luther discovered the God of the Bible, not the God who had been invented by his church, not the God, God of the culture, Not the God of man's preference. Not the God that he had fashioned to look just like him in order to condemn him. Luther found great solace in Psalm 48. And it served as his inspiration to one of the greatest songs in the history of the church. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And though this world with devils filled would threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Doth ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Luther had such a grasp of God from that point on that he ushered in the greatest reformation in the history of the Christian church. And what was that reformation really? It wasn't really Luther coming to an understanding of the Bible per se. The reformation came about 
as a result of Luther understanding God. Who God is. That he is a God of grace who becomes personal for us when we activate his salvation in our life through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin. It's not just the grace of God, however, that God wants us to know. He also wants us to know his total, complete, incomprehensible power. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham's wife Sarah laughed at the message that God gave her that in the ripe old age of 90, she was going to finally bear a child. Her husband was at the age of 100. And the Bible says Sarah laughed. Now, my own personal theory is that Abraham and Sarah waited till they could afford children to have them, but nevertheless, Sarah laughed. And nine months later, God had the last laugh. But God answered her back, is there anything too hard for me? Job went through colossal tragedies in his life, and yet... When they were all over, Job said he came to know God in a personal way that he would have never come to know God if it weren't for those tragedies in his life. In Job 42.2, Job said, God, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says this, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, how did Job see God? Was it, was it that Job got his eyeballs on the, the, a physical manifestation of God? No, it was the, through suffering. It was through walking with God. It was through journeying with God, even in that incredible time of suffering, that he said, I have seen God. In Luke chapter 1, the angel tells Mary, a virgin, that she's going to have a baby. Very different story than, than Sarah. But Mary asks a very logical question. How can this be since I don't know a man? And the angel gives her the only answer that that teenage girl needed. With God, nothing is impossible. In Revelation 19.6, there are a group of people who've been looking to heaven where the, where the Bible says where, in that place, heaven is our help and our hope and our salvation comes from there. And the Bible says that that crowd upon seeing that cries out and worships the Lord. Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Jeremiah 32.17 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And Psalm 62.11 says, One thing God God has spoken two things I have heard that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. This is the God of creation. With only a word, he spoke the world's into existence and flung the stars into space. And now the Bible tells us, as science confirms, that God, once he created all, now he sustains it perfectly. Isn't that amazing? You know, Einstein was not a Christian, but Einstein was a believer in God because he said, the, he said the mathematical perfection of the universe demands the existence of a God. It's the God of the burning bush who called Moses and who calls every Christian today to a life of ministry 
and missions, to take the gospel to the world, to live as an observable example of the love, grace, mercy, and compassion of God. This is the God of the Exodus who brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and who still sets the hearts of people free today. This is the God of the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel who supernaturally sustained his chosen people in the desert wilderness for 40 years and he's the God who still provides perfectly according to his his perfect will for everyone who will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is the God of the prophets, ordinary men who spoke the prophetic word of God and he still provides a perfect word for all of his children to share today that Jesus Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the God of the miraculous. This is the God who through his son Jesus Christ did such a life of miracles the world has never seen. This is the God who by his spirit conceived the divine and also the human life in the womb of a virgin teenager. This is the God who spoke to his son and through his son and performed miracles the world had never seen. This is the God who in Christ reconciled the world to himself on a bloody, cruel cross. And he's the God who raised the dead corpse of his son back to life again, the greatest display of the power of God the world has ever seen. And so my appeal to you this morning, Christian, is the same as the appeal that the Apostle Paul made to the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may know Him better. I also pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. And one more thought. Whose God is this God? Psalm 48, 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. Who's God? Our God. Our personal God. All of the Bible is about this message, that through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know God personally and intimately, and that God can give you a great purpose for your life. God has shown us who He is through His Son, Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, has made Him known. What do you mean, preacher? Well, Jesus told Philip, If you've seen me, You've seen God. Jesus chose to live as a man among men, as a man totally dependent upon God, but he was still God. Because he became a human man, he understands what we go through when we're tempted. He understands what it's like to live in a tough world. And so this is God's desire for you. Listen again, that he, that God, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. It is vitally important that you spend your life 
answering this question. What do you think about God? Let me pray for you. And so God, awaken our spirits. God, quicken our hearts that it might become our passion to know you, to know your personality, to know your power, to know and experience for ourselves your salvation found only in Jesus Christ. Oh God, may it be in Jesus' name.